then begins the narrative that answers these questions. Okay? If God created all things good, then where did evil come from and what did God do about it? But of course, the account here is of the uh, creation of, of Adam and Eve. And uh, in the perfect garden, God placed two trees, the tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? And uh, he commanded then, of any tree you may freely eat, including the tree of life, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, because of the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, so here now we have the first case of what we would call the second use of the law, the law that condemns, the law that threatens, the law that warns, okay? And uh, the warning here that you shall surely die, okay? And um, uh, why do you think God even made this a possibility? Why did he put that tree of the knowledge of good and evil there? <laughs> it seems like he's putting temptation right in their way. Well, there certainly is opportunity to fall now. I mean, he created us with free choice, so therefore allowing that choice to be available instead of a, oh, I created you, and we're going to walk in the garden, and you're going to worship me, and that's the only choice you have. You know, you're, you're a robot in your mind even though I gave you dominion over the earth, you still have no choice in what you're doing. Okay. This allows, you do have a choice. Okay. I, I've told you not to do it, but you still have the choice whether to follow that instruction or not follow that instruction. Wherever you have God's act of grace, and we've seen that by the bucketfuls here, and his creative work here, there's always also the call to response, the human response here, okay? Now, God initiates it, okay? God starts it, but there's now the, the response. And remember, this is a love relationship with God. And if, as C.S. Lewis says, we were simply automatrons, okay, kind of robots saying, I love you, God, I love you, God, would that be true love? And so now there was this, a focused place of a response of obedience okay, with the, was this tree. Now, he could have made it a bridge to cross, say, don't cross that bridge, or a hill to climb, or whatever, or a rock to touch, whatever. That's not the point. The point here is that this was um, some place, focus, where there would be a response to his grace, okay? And, and so um, this is kind of what's behind it, okay? Uh, why do you think it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why that descriptor? Well, that no evil yet, but after eating from it, they certainly would have knowledge of both of them. Okay, okay. They don't know evil now, okay? They don't know that, and in the... Bible, the word know means to to actually experience it, okay? 
And um, so, yeah, they, they don't know that. Now, after they eat of it, God says they have to be expelled because now they do know good and evil. Okay. So uh, there's, there's not that, that understanding. Okay. But from the tree of life, they can eat. Okay. What's the tree of life? Good stuff. It is. It is. Good stuff in terms of eternal life. It's really the expression of, of, of life that never ends. Good, good stuff. Okay? Well, they, they do eat of the, the uh, fruit. And um, what's the motivation? Obviously, the serpent, Satan, taking this form of the serpent, tempts and deceives them. But how does he do so? He tells them that they'll be able to know what God is. Okay, okay, yeah. And it's that knowledge, that idea of evil. Where God knows what's evil as he casts out Satan, but they don't. Okay, okay. So, it's the uh, um, aspiration to go beyond simply being a created subject to God to actually being your own God, being like God, okay? You shall be like God. And uh, this is called the big lie elsewhere in scriptures. And it's something that we see throughout the New Testament, or Old Testament and New Testament in our own lives. Idolatry. Having some other God before the true God in the face of the true God the creator God. And in a sense, saying, uh, I'll be the master of my own destiny. I will be my own God. And we do that ourselves in many, many ways. It's really at the core of sin. Okay. Um, in one sense, a, a sin was committed by Eve even before she took of that fruit. What was the sin, do you think? Okay. Coveting. Happening in the mind here. Coveting. But also not trusting God. Because the devil said, did God really say that when you eat of that, you shall die? Yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. God said it. That settles it. But she didn't. So, she doubted God. She disbelieved. Which also shows us the core of sin is disbelief. Disbelief. Okay. And there are consequences then, of course, here. The expulsion from the garden. Okay. Uh, God, first of all, in chapter 3, declares consequences of this sin. Um, Adam and Eve hide, you notice. And then when God finds them, which as if God would have trouble finding anybody, but uh, they blame. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent, serpent, so they try to pass off the buck. Uh, they are ashamed of their nakedness. Okay, And uh, the sense here of being ashamed uh, 
of nakedness has a sense of guilt. Okay? And nakedness in the, the scriptures has a sense of, of being judged. Okay? This morning I was naked in the shower, but I wasn't ashamed. Okay? But if I was naked before you right now, I would be ashamed because of the um, shame of being looked at, you know, glared at, and so forth. Um, so now they feel God is looking at, glaring at, judging. They feel their inadequacy, their sin. So God then in chapter 3 pronounces judgment upon them. And uh, um, the judgment falls on the serpent, okay? The serpent. Also on Eve and on Adam. Okay? And not only on those three individuals, the characters of the story, but then on the whole creation. Okay? What's the judgment upon the serpent? All in the belly and eat the dust of the ground and be the crushed by the heel of man. Okay, okay. So there is a more immediate part to that judgment in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, 14 and 15, where the creature, the animal, if you will, the serpent, will live a lowly life, will be despised by the descendants of humanity, and there will always be this ill will between human beings and serpents, and serpents will bite at the heels of human beings, human beings will crush the heads of serpents. But there's a double meaning here. We've seen this in the, the rest of Scripture. The Holy Spirit, as the interpreter of this in, in the rest of Scripture, says there's more to it than that. Okay, There's a double meaning, a deeper meaning than just that. What is the, the deeper meaning? Jesus. Okay. Christ and explain it. That Satan will persuade people to kill or strike Jesus, but he will come back and strike and uh, overcome and win against Satan. Okay. Okay. So the promise now is that an offspring of the woman, a human being, real flesh and blood human being, offspring of the woman, will now, in a sense, reverse the curse, destroy the work of the serpent, of Satan. And there will be, he himself will be wounded in the process, the heel being pierced. Think of the crucifixion. But in that same moment, he will crush, destroy the work of the evil one. Okay? And in fact, um, John says uh, that Christ came into the world for this purpose to destroy uh, the, the work of the evil one. And so this is what we see here. This is called Genesis 3, verse 15, called the Proto-Evangelion. A 
Proto-Evangelion. Uh, proto meaning first, Evangelion gospel. This is the first promise of the redemptive work of God in Jesus Christ. And it comes immediately upon um, the, the, the fall and the judgment. Okay? But then there's also judgment upon Eve. What's the judgment that she receives? Okay. What should be a very joyful experience, wonderful experience, being fruitful and multiplying, giving birth now, will be a painful experience. Okay? Also, that what had been a wonderful relationship with her husband in terms of her desire for her husband and his headship on her will now be twisted. And there will be conflict in that relationship. And uh, we all have seen that <laughs> conflict between men and women, husband and wife, um, uh, in terms of uh, the order of creation and so forth. Okay, in terms of the man, what's the judgment? Adam. Work. Now, it wasn't that he didn't have work to do in the garden, he was to care for and and tend to the garden, that's work. So work in itself is not evil uh, or a, a, a judgment for sin. But what about work? You have to do it in order to survive. Okay. Everything was provided for you by God. Okay. You outside the garden, you have to provide it on your own. Okay. There's going to be harder thorns and thistles. Sure, sure. Hard, difficult, painful, struggle, burden, uh, now creation no longer is working with you, if you will. <laughs> In many ways, it'll be working against you. Okay, you see the image there of thistles and thorns. You'd be working against it, drought. So the creation itself now has the effects of the curse. And uh, uh, the creation was created good, but the creation now also suffers. And Paul says in Romans 8 that the whole creation is groaning in travail, waiting for its redemption at the appearing of the sons of men, of, of God, I mean. Um, and so it itself awaits this final recreation, which is the ultimate end that we look forward to. The new heaven and the new earth, the new creation. Not only our own bodies resurrected, but the creation restored to something as good as the original creation, redeemed creation. That's our hope. The New Testament says that's our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope isn't to die and uh, go up to heaven as a spirit. <laughs> our ultimate hope is the resurrection body, soul and body, physical living in a restored new creation, physical creation, a new Eden. That's our ultimate hope that Christ makes possible for us. Okay, but then also the judgment of death. death. 
uh, from dust you have come, to dust you shall return. That judgment of death. Okay, so what we see now in these uh, opening chapters of Genesis here is the intrusion of sin. And this is the symbol for sin, okay? God is a giving God. The, the arrows go out. He lives to give. But sin is taking. Sin is what can I get for myself? Luther called sin uh, man turned in on himself where I become number one and I sit on the throne. So that sin now entered into the world and shattered this perfect creation and uh, affects human beings that they are turned in on themselves and causes a separation between humans and God. Isaiah says, your sins have made a separation between you and your God, and your iniquities have caused him to hide his face from you. Separation there. Okay? Um, In Eden, then, sin also causes a separation between Adam and Eve, male and female. Okay? They start blaming each other and uh, come at, become, have a, a sense of enmity against one another. Okay? What follows then in the next account in Genesis chapter 4 is a multiplying of this to their generations as well. And uh, by the way, the graphics for, for this are in your book as well with a descriptive commentary, so you do have the, this graphic there. But this is between brother and brother, separated by murder. So there's this, uh, in creation there was a good kind of separation for the forming, but now in this um, fall, there's uh, undesirable separation between God and humanity, between people, husband and wife, male and female, brother and brother. And that's the story of Cain and Abel, of course. So in Genesis chapter 4, then, you have um, 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 Eve giving birth. And by the way, um, Adam names Eve um, at this point. Uh, Eve means life, source of life, chava in the Hebrew, actually. And uh, so her name itself is an expression of God's grace that he continues to provide and preserve his people with life and uh, with that original uh, commission to be fruitful and multiply. So uh, the very fact that he allows them to continue to live and to to produce life, to reproduce, is a demonstration of his grace. So what you have here then are uh, these two uh, sons that are born. Um, Take a look at chapter 4, verse 1. Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And uh, the term Cain there probably has... Uh, roots with the term gotten there. Um, so there's a connection with the naming. This is something you'll oftentimes see in the scriptures when a child is born. Uh, they'll explain the background behind the name, uh, what's behind the name. Um, or translates this. 
as, I have gotten a man, the Lord. Because, if you know Hebrew, there is a particle. It essentially says, I have gotten, gotten a man, and then, et Yahweh. Okay. In Hebrew, you go from right to left. This is the divine name for Yahweh. And uh, the et here can either be a particle identifying a direct object or more infrequently, it can be a preposition with. Okay? But the more frequent use is the direct article. And it's not clear here. Okay? So the translation that you have here, and oftentimes it goes with the participle here. I have gotten a man with the Lord, but if you're identifying this as a direct object marker, it would be I have gotten a man, i.e., the Lord. Okay? So, um, obviously, if it's this translation, with the Lord, She's still saying it's because of God and his grace that this is possible. It's God has made it possible. God's providing. But if she is identifying this child as the Lord, what's behind that? What's motivating her there to do so? She's expecting the promise. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's precisely what Luther uh, affirms too. That she was expecting the deliverer. Good expectation she has. God's coming in flesh. Remember the offspring of the woman? I could understand that. Will be the deliverer. But the timing wasn't right. Off by quite a bit. Okay? So, uh, with, with the Lord here. Uh, or the Lord. Um, well, you know the story, though. Um, Cain and Abel. Cain is a worker of the fields. Abel is a shepherd. And uh, the sh- sheep are not being tended to to be butchered for the wool because uh, animals aren't eaten yet. But they are all af- are offered as sacrifices. The scriptures doesn't, don't tell us specifically why God rejected Cain's offering. But it does say that Abel brought the first fruits, the first among his flock, the best, the first and the best. It doesn't say that about Cain. And this is a principle that uh, is found throughout scripture, that again, in our response to God and his grace to us, we offer up first fruits, the best. Cain didn't do, perhaps do that, and that's why his was rejected. But the text doesn't tell us explicitly. It does tell us that he, Cain's offering was rejected. Cain, in resentment and jealousy and envy then, turns on Abel and slays his brother. 
maliciously, deliberately entices him out into the fields and slays him. Okay? And uh, once again, as in Genesis chapter 3, God goes searching. God searches out the uh, rebel, and he still does today. It says, Cain, where, are, where is your brother? Just as in the garden, he searched for Adam and Eve. Now he searches for Cain. Where is your brother? And Cain tries to avoid. Am I my brother's keeper? Okay. Just as Adam and Eve tried to pass on the blame. And yet God confronts him with his sin. The blood of your brother cries out. And now judgment must befall you. Okay. And the judgment then is the mark. Uh, is the, I'm sorry, expulsion. Uh, Cain says this penalty is too great for me because uh, people will kill me. Well, what people? <laughs> Who's going to kill him? Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Other offspring of Adam and Eve. We know they would have offspring and they would live long lives, so recognizing this. Okay. So, uh, that judgment. Um, but God then gives Cain a mark that preserves him. So, even, even in that sin, there is an act of grace. Okay, the fourth episode that we have in this narrative, sin entering into the world, is with the flood. Okay? And the image here that they have of crossways is a separation between the heavenly beings and earthly beings. And this is because in um, Genesis chapter 6, if you want to turn to that, it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Um, elsewhere in the Old Testament, sons of God oftentimes refers to angels. And so the depiction here of angelic beings here. But there are also times when the term sons of God refers to human beings. I think it's much more likely, and uh, uh, without going into all the detail here, I think the structure of the previous chapter indicates this as well, that uh, the sons of God would be the descendants of Adam's third son, Seth, who will now carry on the line for the Messiah, the promised line, Seth. And uh, the daughters of men are the descendants of Cain. And if you, if you would look in chapter 5, you will even see, or I should say chapters 4 and 5, um, Cain's descendants went away from the presence of the Lord. So they essentially abandoned the, the Lord. Uh, but Seth's descendants call upon the name of the Lord, chapter 4, verse 26. So it seems like the line of Cain become apostate and do not follow or call upon Yahweh. 
whereas the line of Seth do follow the way of the Lord. I think what's being described here then is that now those two lines are intermixing. Okay, So the Orthodox followers are now intermarrying because the, the sons of, of or the daughters of man, descendants of, of Cain, are being taken by the sons of God, the descendants of Seth. And what it's saying here is that those who had been following the Lord now are choosing spouses who are not followers and almost always the story ends in that case in the Old Testament of people falling away. Okay, think of Solomon. Okay, think of Ahab and Jezebel marrying an idolatrous wife. They fall away. So I think that's really what's being said here. But in any case, the, the outcome is everybody's falling away. There's this great sin and apostasy upon the earth. Okay? And so you've got then the, as this is depicting here, this painting, the intermarriage of the two lines. Okay? Not angels and human beings, but all human beings, two lines. And so God announces the judgment to destroy all of humanity, uh, but spare one family. And that is, of course, Noah. And as you can see, three sons here, Ham, Shem, Japheth, and those, their wives. So eight people in all are spared. Okay, He's directed to build an ark. Uh, this is how it's popularly depicted, but if you look at the dimensions uh, described in Genesis, it's more like a long box rather than a cruise ship. It's like a barge that you'd see out on the Mississippi River more, only taller, much taller, but kind of a tall barge. Because all it has to do is float. Just float and settle again. Okay, It's just got to carry life. And uh, animals are gathered in, okay? And uh, how many of each animal was taken into the ark? Well, it depends on the animal. Was it clean? Popularly, as depicted here, you've got two of each, but not necessarily what the scriptures say. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. Okay. So, seven pairs of clean animals. So, of unclean animals, you have one pair, but of clean animals, you have two, uh, seven pairs. Seven of two. Okay, and so the way you remember that is Genesis 7 verse 2 says of the clean animals, there are seven twos, seven pairs. Now the question is, why? What's the reason behind that? 
Okay. 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 So what you'll see then, after they come out of the ark, and you've got the rainbow there, the promise, then they are permitted to eat meat. Not commanded, so there's nothing wrong with being a vegetarian, but you're permitted to eat meat. Okay? So, more of the clean to eat, not to eat unclean animals. That's one reason, the important one, but there's another. Okay, the clean animals are the ones that are offered up as burnt offerings. Okay, so immediately after they disembark, Noah sacrifices animals. Well, if there was only one pair, <laughs> that would have been immediate extinction of that species. Okay, obviously. So, uh, to allow for sacrifice as well. So, there, there's a purpose behind this. Yes? In Genesis, does it say where God distinguishes between clean and unclean animals? Did I miss that? Or is um, it assumed that somewhere in there he does? Yeah, it's simply assumed. I mean, you got already with... Um, um, Cain and Abel, the offering of, sac- of animal sacrifices, as well as grain offerings and so forth, which you'll have throughout the Old Testament. There's the offerings of the produce from the ground, but also offerings of animals. Uh, so there must have been some kind of, I don't know, revelation uh, about what is clean, what is not clean, that simply is not presented to us in the scriptures at this point yet. It will be delineated uh, when we get to the cyanitic law, okay, what is clean and unclean. But uh, there are practices before Sinai um, that are associated oftentimes with the ceremonial law that appear uh, in Genesis and Exodus, okay. Uh, Circumcision is another example that appears in Genesis, uh, part of the ceremonial law, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, uh, then uh, after the flood, there's the great uh, judgment on the the world. And uh, when the ark settles then, uh, Noah offers up a sacrifice. You have the rainbow, which uh, is the symbol of the covenant God makes. A very important covenant. And what is his promise? Okay, never to destroy the world, period, in that fashion, with a flood, with water. I didn't say he would never destroy the world or kind of prefigure, because that will come through fire, Second Peter tells us, okay. but not by water. So it's a promise of continued life and provision. Okay. At this point, um, and um, it's interesting at this point where God makes this promise, this promise of life, promise of a new world. He still immediately has a little footnote. 
Okay, and uh, you can see that in uh, chapter nine, verse one. Notice how it echoes what we saw earlier in Genesis with Adam and Eve. God blessed Noah and his sons, blessing, and then command, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, this is a, we're starting over here. Fill the earth. Okay. Um, verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Okay. Um, Verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you. Okay, the covenant, I will never again, shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again be a flood to destroy the earth. Okay? Um, but, uh, I'm not finding it here. But soon thereafter, uh, he acknowledges that uh, sin continues on. And uh, I'm sorry, I can't find it right now. But in this context... It's it's actually in uh, chapter 8. Oh, okay. Verse uh, 21. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Eight, verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never again will I strike down every living creature as I'd done. So um, this promise for seed time and harvest to continue summer and winter will not cease um, with this massive cataclysmic uh, flood will not happen again. Yet it doesn't mean that sin has been removed. Sin is still in the heart of humanity. And so sin will continue on. And so that's the next uh, episode here in chapter 11, Tower of Babel, uh, where sin enters in and causes, uh, eventually the judgment is a separation of language. And uh, what you have here is these people gathering together. They build this tower, and there's great pride and presumptuous presumption. Let us build this tower to make a name for ourselves, bring glory to self, and again, be our own God. That will reach to heaven. We can storm heaven itself. And we typically understand this as a ziggurat. It probably didn't look like one of these spiral kind of wedding cake type things. It's more like a... Uh, you know, the ancient Middle Eastern uh, ziggurat. But those ziggurats, they assumed the top was considered to be heaven and that this was the connecting place between heaven and earth. Okay? Uh, So that's what they're assuming here, that we can achieve this by our own power. And they say, we'll do this lest we be scattered throughout the earth, which is, again, a a rebellion against God's command that God-given... Adam and Eve, and he gave once again to Noah and his descendants, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And they're disobeying that. Okay? Well, again, God confounds the language 
so that whereas they wanted to be together, now they are dispersed. The judgment of dispersion and uh, of the confusion of languages. So the judgment of God falls upon all of these sins. Okay, I'm going to skip over this. Now, one last thing here before we go. Very important for us to see here in these opening chapters of Genesis. There is a cycle that goes through time and time again. Actually, as you can see, four cycles here. And um, um, Professor Rossow calls it the tricycle, tricycle, cycle of three. Cycle of sin, judgment, and God's grace. The symbols here, uh, originally God created everything good, but Adam and Eve sinned, the fall. There was the judgment of death, but God's grace provided for them, gave them life, providence, clothed them with the skins of animals that were obviously killed. Life is substituted for life. Um, very important principle in the Old Testament and the New, obviously finding its culmination in Jesus Christ, his life provided for us. Then in the second story here, you have this tricycle again, the sin of murder, the judgment of expulsion, and then the sign of that preserved the life of Cain, God's grace, provision. Third cycle here, well, the sin isn't so much cosmic confusion as just kind of universal um, rebellion and um, uh, turning away from God, apostasy. The judgment is the flood, and the grace is the preservation of Noah and his family. But even in the new world, after the flood, there still is sin manifested in the rebellion of the people of Babel. Uh, the judgment of the confusion of languages and ultimately the dispersion. But there's grace as well. And the grace is the calling of Abraham. Calling of Abraham here. And the blessing that is promised to him. So essentially what you have here is God starting out with Adam and Eve, okay, and um, but sin entered into the world, yet they populated to a point up to the flood, and God ended the expansion of the population um, at the time of the flood. Yet he preserved, again, one man, Noah, and his family, seven others, eight in all. And from that, then, the population continues to grow, expand. They think of these as a num larger number of people. But what we find is that the descendants of Noah become as corrupt and evil as was the case here at the time of the flood. But because of the promise not to destroy all of humanity with the flood, God chooses another strategy. Not that he 
hadn't planned this all from the beginning, from the beginning of time. But the strategy here is that instead of eliminating the whole race and starting over, the whole race of humanity continues, and yet he now starts with one man, and from that one man will come descendants who will be followers of the Lord, that is, Abraham. Okay, this was Noah. And God's intention here is not simply to say, well, the hell with the rest of you. But the purpose is that through the influence of these descendants of Abraham, Abraham then Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And eventually and ultimately through the descendant of Abraham, Christ, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So the story that we'll read now throughout the Old Testament is God's intention for the descendants of Abraham to bring blessing in the midst of a fallen world, midst of sin, midst of the curse, and ultimately the descendant of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman who would truly reverse the curse of sin and bring blessing to all. Okay? So, that's uh, as far as we go today.